0: My father has been visiting me this week and we've had the opportunity to do a lot of fun chatting while we're cooking dinner together. That's the thing we do. He said, you know, dad, because he's the Bitcoin dad, dad, I'm the Bitcoin dad. You know, dad, your podcast is 60% macroeconomics and 40% technical stuff that I can barely understand. And I said, thanks for listening, dad. And he's right. And I was just thinking, we talk a lot about things like the energy crisis, things like the sovereign bond market. And I think that we need to bring it all together every now and then and remind people why we talk about these things. And I think that the broader view is that we live in a world where a lot of fundamental things like money, like value, like energy, these are determined by the interaction between policies, technology, and then external shocks. And we can't control any of these things and we can't insure ourselves against them. To protect yourself against bad monetary policy that's been building up over 40 years, there really is no place to hide. And we have an article about that today. And Bitcoin actually gives you a place to park value and to eventually use as a payment system that will not explode. It has a completely different risk profile than dollars in a bank account, gold in a vault, gold in an ETF or property. It has no counterparties. It's very different. And I think that's part of the drive to try to understand the economic situation and the economic world, because my understanding of the economic world informs my decision to think of Bitcoin as insurance against things going wrong in the real economy. And even if the real economy and the political world gets its act together and pulls through, Bitcoin's still great technology. So I view that as just this win-win-win situation. And then on the technical side, I think that the technical side is really, really important because how do you know if it's Bitcoin that will inherit the earth or Ethereum or Solana? You need to understand at a certain level, the technical reality of what makes these financial and monetary systems work. And something we talked about a few weeks ago was that the dollar, it actually kind of works. It worked for a long time as a system for the world to transact value and do economic calculation and build a very large global economy until it stopped working. And now we're dealing with the volatility of a world that's looking for an alternative.
1: Yeah, it's very true. And I think in a way, by following the macro today, you're going to school on why Bitcoin is going to be an in-demand product over the next decade. You're essentially learning all of the things that are going to create demand for something like Bitcoin. So when it does start to pop off, as just these types of transitions happen, you're going to understand what's going on and the fundamentals of why everybody now considers Bitcoin so seriously valuable when it spent a decade slowly, slowly, gaining value. 100%.
0: This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Saturday, October 15th. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here with our classic. It's me. Greatest co-host.
1: Over here. This guy. It's Chris. Hey, everybody. I'm back. Back from the road. Missed doing the show, but I'm back now. Hey, everybody. Hi.
0: We really missed you. At the same time, there was an opportunity to have a guest host. Did you listen to that? What
1: did you think? I am behind on all my podcasts. No, I haven't yet. But don't you worry. I will get caught up because I was going through the boost today, and I was like, oh, that sounds like it was a great episode. All right, I'm gonna have to all right, don't oh yep, gonna have to catch that
0: episode. <laughs> so I'll get caught up. And on the subject of boost, let's get into the news. A massive Taproot multi-sig broke BTCD and LND, and I thought it would break boost as well, but we're still receiving them, so maybe we're okay. Nidig, the Bitcoin custodial financial services backend company, just laid off thirty percent of their staff. Interesting. I thought these guys were the smart money. I guess they got over their skis. And and PayPal, which you covered on your Coda Radio podcast, tested an insane moderation policy where PayPal was going to fine users $2,500 for wrong think on social media. Slippery slope there, really slippery slope. In economics, Lynn Alden's October newsletter is all about connecting the energy markets, the bond markets, and how this constrains government policy and leads us towards the inflationary future that Bitcoin was built to protect. From we also have a written interview with financial sage Russell Napier, one of my favorites, who talks about portfolio insurance and doesn't say Bitcoin, but you'll be screaming Bitcoin at him by the end of the interview. In Tokenomics, it turns out that Kim Kardashian pumped an altcoin scam. Gosh, what a surprise! I guess she didn't do her due diligence. She was fined by the SEC, paid it, and the SEC acted like it was a big deal, but it's just lipstick on a pig. We also have a funny incident with. Craig Stephen Wright, a.k.a. Fake Toshi. I feel safe saying that because that's what other people call him. I'm not saying he's a complete and utter fraud. I'm just saying what other people have said about him. It's documented. You didn't make it up. I didn't make it up. He shows off his galaxy-sized brain by arguing with a bot in Twitter, and his trial against Hodlnought is turning up all sorts of forged documents that Craig provided to KPMG for validation. Gosh, this guy thinks he's really smart, and the data Would say otherwise, it seems. We also have a privacy story. Mulvad, the VPN company I mentioned last week, again, where is our sponsorship, has released some data on reducing VPN leaks by using Graphene OS, which is my favorite Android mobile operating system. And then in Bitcoin education, we have Bitcoin Optech 221 and the story of the Hydra Darknet Marketplace. It's quite a read. I think Darknet Marketplaces are an important piece of Bitcoin history and sort of. And narco capitalism on the internet. Not that we would know anything about that. Not at all. We are just drinking room temperature water over here. <laughs> it's good for the throat, though. And then we have some feedback and boosts. So it will be a tight but content heavy episode. This show? No, never. We're very serious. so let's just talk about nydig have you followed this
1: company chris you know it rings a bell but i don't think i know i don't think i recall what they do off the top of my head
0: nydig kind of showed up on the scene in 2021 they raised a billion dollars and their goal is building institutional grade bitcoin platform right and i think their concept was that they would build some infrastructure that could then plug into banks backends so that banks could start offering bitcoin and let's be honest they're probably going to go to crypto too eventually services to bank account holders. So you've already onboarded with your bank, your bank onboards to Nidig, and then suddenly you've got stacking sats in your online bank account. I think
1: that was the concept. And the bank is uh, partnering with Nidig, and they probably provide all the custodial services and everything I met. Exactly.
0: So on the one hand, this is yay Bitcoin adoption. On the other hand, this is this Bitcoin is all custodied and exposes you to all the risks of custody in the traditional banking system. So at the end of the day, what did you do?
1: Kind of. Not to mention completely KYC'd, obviously. Obviously. Well,
0: it turns out that they put all their eggs in the basket of expanding this banking relationship strategy and it didn't pay off, or at least not in time. So they're trimming their workforce and I guess hoping to survive the bear market and wait until another bull market when banks will be
1: interested in taking this leap again, maybe. Yeah, I mean, a 30% reduction in staff is is no joke. And often I have discovered when you look into it, the number that they release, it's kind of a low ball because they'll sometimes they'll have other ways of letting people go too that aren't technically part of a layoff. So sometimes the number they release when they say 30%, it's actually a little bit higher. That's a pretty significant chunk of staff, no doubt about that. I wonder, Dad, if it's not one of these things where the companies that are really on the edge of things are the ones that sort of immediately feel an economic downturn, I suppose, like the beginning of a recession. They, they, they feel to immediately so they have to act kind of on the edge of something big like this is a big well trend or opportunity they've identified. Exactly. On the edges of trends, on the on the edges of new markets, things like that. Like they must get hit the worst, the fastest.
0: I agree. At the same time, there's kind of counter news too. So I think maybe NYDIG might have been too aggressive going after retail banking because I think their goal is to allow banks to offer Bitcoin to retail customers. But also this week, there was news that BNY Mellon, which venture capitalists call Bony this is a big U.S. bank that does asset custody they're a huge custody bank and so they yeah. will hold securities and derivatives and all sorts of things for hedge funds and financial companies and pension funds while they're trading them and Boney is custodying Bitcoin now they're partnering with fireblocks who famously lost is it was it 50 60 millions of dollars of ethereum they stated yeah. it incorrectly but now yeah apparently <laughs> that doesn't matter in the world of crypto custody you're doing great if you can keep on
1: moving fast and just a glitch. funds. They're just working it out. You know, if they just hire more people, then they'll solve those tech problems. It's just a stack issue.
0: Right. And Boney getting into the space is interesting because on the one hand, as institutions adopt quote unquote crypto and Bitcoin, they prevent the whole space from just getting banned because they're so fragile that if they put money into it and they have exposure and then some government regulator bans it, well, now they blow up because they have this super fragile quality of always rehypothecating their assets. And the moment that they kind of get into something, they always lever up and are now exposed to the volatility of all of these asset classes they custody and touch. So on the one hand, institutional adoption, great, okay, I guess crypto and Bitcoin are, is here to stay. On the other hand, it's custodied, it's controlled. And when the proverbial cake hits the proverbial fan, what's going to happen is no one will ever be able to withdraw these assets from custody. They will will... will be, in my view, nationalized, essentially, when things get rough. Yeah economically.
1: I think the only silver lining I find there is that when everyone gets burned, at least Bitcoin has the ability to self-custody. So some people will, a small m- minority will self-custody, and then everyone else will have the ability if, uh, you know, some of their Bitcoin gets lost or they get burned or there's something that happens, they're just going to have to learn the hard way. Right. Because I don't think you just naturally, not until there's a culture shift, I don't think you naturally self-custody because we, we're we so used to the bank has all our money. We use just a debit card or even just, you know, Apple Pay or Google Pay on my phone or PayPal it's so abstracted now that I think that, that digital currencies just totally lend to that kind of culture that's already been established. And then you combine things like staking, which also incentivizes large custodians. I, I, don't, I don't see that ever changing until some real hard lessons happen. And I don't mean to be a doom and gloom guy about it, but it's just kind of human nature, I think.
0: The other thing to remember is that self-custody maybe never really existed. There's this idea that in the 19th century gold standard, people were withdrawing their gold from the bank and burying it in their back. I don't think that ever happened. The moment that society developed the level of trust and organization to have banks that would custody physical gold and give you a paper note and allow you to make long distance transfers by filling out forms at the bank and then they would telegraph another bank and the transfer would be done. People did that 100% immediately. There were a couple cranks who saw this as a risky system and it was risky, but it was so convenient that everyone participated essentially. At least that's the history I've read. I'd be open to hearing a different account, but that's what I see in the history books.
1: Yeah, I've heard that too. And you also have, uh, you know, podcasters like us saying, self-custody is the way to go. Use these tools. And, you know, the internet does allow us to spread information, and social media in particular, unfortunately, allows us to spread information in a much broader, faster way. So more people will have the ability to get that info if they want it. See, that's me being positive, Dad. I'm being positive. I'm back. I'm positive.
0: Speaking of positive, there is a really goofy report from 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 a crypto intelligence firm, I think intelligence firm, called Alchemy. And they're saying that these Web3 developers are so active in the crypto winter, it's a productive bear market because we can tell because we're tracking the number of smart contracts deployed on Ethereum and the number is up. Yeah. And I just have to say, okay, people are spamming the Ethereum blockchain and that means everything's
1: okay. Great. Great analysis, guys. Yeah. They say that uh, around 36 percent of all smart contracts ever deployed have been in 2022. I mean, that's a weird number to go by because they just kind of gloss right over the fact that NFTs have had a dramatic, destroying 98 percent decrease in volume since January. So like (laughs) in seven, eight months, 98 percent decrease in volume, but they just gloss right over that little stat. Seems like a big one to me, but they don't seem to think so. Uh, They just kind of look at other things, like they notice that Ether.js and Web3.js, well, they've seen a lot more uptick in people using those libraries since, you know, Q3 2021, so that's a good thing. It's really weird what they choose as metrics to indicate success and the ones that they just gloss right over, like the overall volume on the blockchain and active users that we can kind of suss out for Ethereum are way down, even after this big merge traffic is way down on pretty much all the blockchains.
0: Never look back, I think, is the lesson I'm learning from Ethereum.
1: Yeah, that's true. I've been getting emails from all the various exchanges over the years that I've set up accounts at, and they're all pitching me on staking right now. So I imagine, you know, everybody's getting these emails, offering them 4 or 5% return if you stake your Ethereum with them. I don't know. And it's even with that kind of going around, it's still pretty low volume on the Ethereum blockchain, at least if I was looking at the right stats. I think when, when money's tight and there's a lot going on in the world... People aren't playing around with monkey JPEGs and uh, digital money like that, you know, because it's Ethereum's kind of funny money. Speaking of
0: funny, PayPal made a big funny when they released a new AUP. What does AUP stand for?
1: Oh, it's got to be something user policy, right? Acceptable use policy. Ah, that must be it. That makes sense. And in it,
0: they suggest that if you spread any misinformation, which is very vague and left to PayPal to decide, they will fine you $2,500. And if you don't have $2,500 in your PayPal account, don't worry. They're connected to your bank account and other credit cards and whatnot. So they'll just bill whatever payment options you have in your
1: account. Cool, right? It's the new overdraft fee, but now it's for misinformation as determined by PayPal.
0: This is obviously wild and... And they're walking it back. But the fact that this made it into a draft policy means that, yeah, they're thinking about it. It's probably going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen next year or a little later. But I think that it kind of reveals an issue with the custodial technology of legacy payment systems in that if you're going to use PayPal and bank accounts and credit cards, the companies that administer your account have the ability to do this. If we think back to history, might makes right. If you have the ability to do something, eventually you will do it. And in a sense, maybe you're morally obligated to do it. Let's think of our matrix room. We don't really allow a lot of non-Bitcoin conversation. If someone rolled up and started saying things that were politically or morally unacceptable to us, boom, ban. Use the ban hammer. Well, what about free speech? Well, take your free speech somewhere else because you have the ability to moderate that space. PayPal has the ability to moderate
1: their users. So in a sense, shouldn't they? You know, this has been spun as, well, it's a lawyer thing. You know, this is what happens. In fact, these are some direct quotes like Benedict Evans said. This seems pretty clear to me that PayPal is, this is just another long series of incidents in which companies let the lawyers write legal documents. That is such a lazy scapegoat for this. This is something that a company thought about. Multiple, multiple people thought about this. This must have been a discussion for a long time. It was set to go into effect early November until people came across this. When you're discussing fining people $2,500 US dollars per violation, which would three tweets, three individual tweets of misinformation, would that be three individual violations? They're having a discussion about how they determine what's misinformation. They have a discussion about how this is going to work from a processing standpoint. It's not just something lawyers accidentally put into a document.
0: Yeah, I mean, this to quote Paul Storks from two weeks ago, everybody's broke. I don't think most people in the United States, let alone international users could financially survive a surprise $2,500 penalty for something that PayPal thinks
1: they did. We know that's statistically true for about 60% of Americans.
0: Right. And this isn't a legal process. So there's no due process. I think Dominic on Coda Radio pointed out, it's just like the Google policy to scan all of your pictures for evidence of inappropriate behavior. Once they flag your account, they don't care if it was an error to control risk. They just cancel your account and you're out of luck. This looks like the same situation. Right.
1: It's 100% a risk control.
0: While this is dark and ominous, this is also the best advertisement for Bitcoin I've read this year. So take that as you will. Bitcoin is not going to cancel you because Bitcoin
1: can't cancel you. I think this underscores why you need something that is of value, that can be a store of value, that is separate from the state. I mean, not to go full conspiracy here, but I'm realizing the point you just made, if you think about what you just said about how this is analogous to Google scanning for child porn. Google's doing that because of legal and political pressure from a ginormous federal government. And it's likely that PayPal is doing this for the same motivations. They're not doing it to make their customers happy. Nobody is going to be thrilled by a $2,500 fine from PayPal. They must be feeling political and perhaps legal pressure from the federal government. And so they are making these changes probably to appease that perhaps before they're even required to, because sometimes they just try to front run this type of regulation. So I think this just I could go on a whole rant here about all this, but I think what it underscores for us is it's just healthy and necessary for the people that are supposed to be in charge and have power over their government. I think it's necessary that the store of value that they use is separate from that government.
0: Honestly, Bitcoin makes this whole debate much easier because you don't have the ability to financially censor and control people. So it takes away the whole moral debate of whether or not we should financially censor and control people. And our argument which we'll reiterate again, is that we don't need financial censorship. We have a huge law enforcement industrial complex that needs to be incentivized to do their job well. And financial censorship is a lazy mass tool that breaks economics, it breaks equality, it's inherently racist, it's inherently anti-poor, it's the worst, has so much negative externality, it destroys democracy in the process of deployment. And this is what the world is used right now for they would say legal or uh, law enforcement control or something but actually you know this is uh, this is really a huge negative externality right socially economically politically
1: we're talking about misinformation we're not talking about somebody who broke the law and so PayPal is finding them for a financial crime using their PayPal account right we're talking about an interpretive subject that is sometimes initially something's considered misinformation and there's lots of examples of this that we then later discover that wasn't misinformation that was actually Fact, but at the time we thought it was misinformation or whatever body determining did.
0: Everyone, regardless of their political views, has spread misinformation at some point. Yeah, I think everyone has fallen for some story that seemed true, seemed juicy, and they at least thought about it, and then maybe they shared it on social media. So, so this is a crime that everyone's guilty of.
1: And sometimes people make mistakes. Like was Jerome Powell spreading misinformation when he said inflation was transitory, or was that a mistake? I don't know. It's up to somebody to. But if they determine it's misinformation, then...
0: Or these people on Twitter who say that Bitcoin is weaponized toxic masculinity. I don't know. It seems like misinformation to me.
1: And so PayPal was going to fine people for a a subjective thing. It has got to be because of external pressures. So we're essentially seeing enforcement of thought through commercial agencies. And it's connected to our money. So it's like just really dark stuff and really does make the case for Bitcoin. This type of stuff, I think when you see the situation in Ukraine for the people, or when you see the situation in Russia for people or when you see the Canadian trucker protest, there's another example of where the financial system was weaponized against individual citizens. I think all of these incidences, and we're seeing them at a faster and faster rate, are clear beacons of why Bitcoin is going to be a valuable product of the future. Just like the macro story is pointing that direction, so are these political and legal and corporate stories as well.
0: And on a completely different subject, if you're running an L&D lightning node, you need to Update it because this fellow named Barack created a 998 of 999 Taproot multi signature transaction and broadcast it on October 9th. And this transaction is totally valid under the new Taproot network rules. However, LND, Lightning Network Daemon, which is the most popular Lightning Node implementation, relies on a Bitcoin Core client called BTCD that's written in Go. I think both LND and BDCD are written in Go, which is kind of an interesting decision. I'm pretty sure, wasn't that language like Apple's mobile language? So writing things for the server on Go, that's question mark there. Maybe you can comment on that, Chris. But BDCD is still enforcing a maximum script size limit from SegWit version zero, <laughs> which means that BDCD is not in consensus with the new Taproot rules, rejects the transaction, and this essentially forks your lightning Node onto a new Bitcoin chain. This is solved by updating to LND version zero point one five point two. You should probably do that.
1: So this did affect one of our nodes. I think I'm not really sure what happened because I got back from the road trip and the service was still up. It hadn't been updated yet. LND was still running, but I think all of our channel connections and this is on Brent's node were all down. Um, and so uh, the split hadn't been working for a few days at this point because nobody could get inbound routing to his node and. I I did the update immediately and restarted the service and all the channel connections came back up. And it didn't really dawn on me that this had all gone down at the same time that this issue was out there. And I thought maybe maybe that was somewhat related. But the otherwise outside of that, you know, for my node and uh, whatnot, it was a pretty smooth process all in all to get updated. It sometimes takes a scary long time for those channels to come back up. And uh, a couple of the channels that uh, that are open in my node have not reopened. So my inbound liquidity is a little down right now. As far as writing the server side and go, that's super common. People love Go for that kind of stuff. Rust, of course, is even more popular these days, but I would argue there's probably more Go code actually out there in production, uh, at least for now. Um, It felt like there was a bit of a rush on this one. Like you needed to update pretty quick. Yeah, I think there's a question around maybe automatic
0: updates might make sense for some lightning applications because it's still hashtag reckless. And were people really reviewing the update before they smashed the update button on their note in a box? So I think that's a debate. I don't know if we should get into it now.
1: Yeah, I could see you know, for this one, the change log was pretty minimal. So if, if it's something really urgent and they want people to adopt it, just minimal changes, I think, is the most successful route. Because when I looked at it, and it was a bullet point <laughs> of changes. I'm like, oh, oh, OK, this is a really minor update to fix a security issue. Yeah, let's do this.
0: Which brings us to economics. Lynn Alden's October newsletter is a doozy, but it essentially is covering events we've been discussing for the last month, which is our 40 year old, sovereign bond bubble, depending on how you look at it, is coming into contact with a reality of physical constraint. And so when an inflated financial bubble meets physical reality, it generally pops. And we're seeing signs of things popping in the English pound crisis last week, or is it two weeks ago now, I think. And in general, Lynn focuses on the very high amount of debt to GDP around the world but specifically in the United States, because her analysis is U.S.-centric, and how it's very unlikely for inflation to fall when energy prices remain elevated and there's actually a lag between high energy prices being passed into every single input in the economy. And there are also questions as to whether or not high interest rates can actually fight inflation, because if our inflation is being caused by a lack of physical things in the world, then higher interest rates means less investment to create more of the physical things in the world. You can see the circularity of that problem.
1: It's exactly where we're at right now, it feels like. I think she does a really good job too of convincing me that we are only at the beginning of energy price issues. Like she points out here, oil is currently over $90, despite the fact that we're clearly in the middle of an economic downturn. Europe is facing recessionary conditions. The U.S. is dumping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve onto the market as fast as we can. The dollar is super strong. While China
0: remains shut down. Oh, right. So basically, oil prices are highly elevated, yet the biggest buyer of oil, China, has decided to take their demand off the market temporarily. And even with that massive source of energy demand taking a nap, the U.S. is still emptying the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to give you... $80 $80 oil.
1: Right. And we're going to get to a point where that's just about going to be done. In fact, Lynn would not, Lynn says she wouldn't be surprised if after about November, December, that drawdown stops just after the midterms, uh, coincidentally. And so going into 2023, we won't be dumping as much from the strategic reserve on the market. So that also, that, that downward pressure will be taken off the price as well. So, and then you got to imagine China is eventually going to let those lockdowns ease. So our reserve will stop dumping on the market. China's demand starts coming back online. Plus you just have winter. And I mean, it's, We're really cooking up for 2023 energy prices to be absolutely wild. And as she points out, and as you point out as well, that's going to keep pressure on the bond market. That's going to keep pressure on inflation. They are really going to be in a rock and a hard place starting next year.
0: And Lynn points out that the illiquidity, basically the lack of interest in purchasing Britain's government debt, because let's think about it. Do you really want to buy the long term obligations of a country that's subsidizing energy consumption for its citizens while cutting taxes, while its economy is shrinking, while it's becoming increasingly politically isolated and marginalized by Brexit. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a great buy to me. But this kind of lack of interest in purchasing foreign debt also is showing up in the U.S. Treasury market, which is one of the primary markets of the world. If you think that the Fed is the central bank of the world and the dollar is the central currency of the world, then the U.S. Treasury auction market is the beating heart of the world financial system. And its it's got arrhythmia right now. It's not looking great. So this is generally an essay that connects energy and financial markets. And it reiterates the point that we're making that the architecture of this system is inherently fragile. It's very prone to both external shocks like COVID or hurricanes or energy reduction that changes some marginal price, which then ripples through the entire system, causing volatility and panic. And the fundamental problem, which oddly brings it back to PayPal, is that these systems are built on counterparty trust. Every asset is someone else's liability. This asset, this government bond, is the liability of a government. So the value reflects on what that government is doing. And in an age of political instability and a lack of social political consensus on what the contract between citizens and governments are, well, I don't want to base my long-term value on a fractured political consensus is kind of a fundamental issue here.
1: Yeah, I agree. And also, I think her ideas on when we're going to see a top on the dollar index are probably pretty spot on. And I've never really heard anyone quite articulate when we would likely see the Dixie kind of top out, but I think she's she's nailed it. She also points out how the treasury market functionality is really what she's focused on now. And once you see the Fed step up to support the treasury market, that's likely when you're going to see the dollar start to top out and then uh, things will start to shift around a bit. It's, it's fascinating, too, that she always does a big portfolio of date in these. So she's really transparent about that kind of stuff as well. So she she tells you where she's investing based on, you know, this analysis.
0: I think that's very practical. Lynn eats her own cooking, which, in my view, gives her credibility. Yeah.
1: Unlike Kim Kardashian, who has no credibility. Who knows what she eats? Oh, wait, I didn't I didn't mean to skip ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Well, now that we're here, Kim got smacked with a it's just so great with a fine. <laughs> Gosh, is this a picture of her in this article? Is that what she
1: looks like? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I have that same reaction. Oh, I guess okay. I know it's it's almost CG looking.
0: Yeah, she doesn't really look like a human no. anymore. No. No. Oh, okay. The best part of this link, so this is uh, helpfully provided to us by crypto critic Amy Castor. Again, if you want to see the ridiculous stuff in crypto, go to Ah, She didn't even... Pro- you know, I keep on giving the milk away for free. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> but the best is go down to the bottom and yeah. there is literally a video where Gary Gensler is getting down with the kids and telling you not to buy financial products endorsed by celebrities. It is... Yeah. Yeah. Super cringe and kind of hilarious.
1: Old Kim here got uh, like a $1.26 million fine. She made on the deal to hype up Ethereum Max, which is just some crappy ERC-20 token. She got paid 250000 So she ended up paying a $1.2 million fine for a $250,000 job. I got to be <laughs> honest.
0: I feel like if you really wanted to stop this kind of behavior, the fine should be based on her net worth.
1: Maybe yeah. that's government overreach. I don't know. Or maybe some sort of calculation of the amount of views. Maybe that's how they got there. But, you know, I wonder what the breakdown is per viewer on her videos. So, have you, I mean, Ethereum Max? I don't even know if I even heard of this before. There's so much crap out there. I think the reason I put this
0: on is to point out how difficult regulatory enforcement is. Regulatory enforcement should be a thoughtful and difficult exercise in determining the social good of various investments and things and, and, and kind of creating a sense of fairness around it. Going after celebrities like Kim, honestly, Honestly, I think, good because we don't want to have unsophisticated investors hurt by grifters.
1: This is a pump and dump scheme. So you can see in the price chart uh, after she posted on Instagram, the uh, price jumps way up. And then, of course, the pre-miners sell their bags. They dump on all the new people that just uh, aped in after Kim posted on Instagram. Insiders always dump. They dump, like we always say. The insiders always dump. Everybody joined up, became their exit liquidity, and then if you look at the price chart, it just never really came back. There was one small bump where uh, there was a little pump and dump again, and then from that point forward, it was a decline down to basically zero. Now,
0: now our former guest host Paul would say, "A fool and his money is soon parted." There's no point in policing this because people really want to give their money to scammers, and I would say you might be right. I don't know. At the same time, you know, I just think of like my grandparents, my parents, and I'm not saying that they're taking financial advice from Kim Kardashian. If
1: Pat Sajak went on Instagram and promoted a coin, they'd be all over that. Who
0: knows? So I'm torn on the correct amount of enforcement on things like this because financial scams are not a trivial thing at all. I am aware of people who've fallen for financial scams, really done serious harm to their financial future and killed themselves. I mean, that's obviously an extreme case, but that, that's happened. I'm aware of it. It's a thing
1: that happens. It's really devastating to be tricked and to feel like a fool. There's also something about the fact that they're not producing anything. They're just bottom feeding. They're grifting on an economy and they're not creating jobs. They're not producing a product. So there's that element, too, that if you had too much of that, you, you'd think you'd have an economy get really sick.
0: Who can tell what the causality is? Is this a sign of economic and social and financial problems? Is it the cause?
1: Maybe both. Maybe this is what happens after 40 years of loose money maybe you create generations of people who don't understand money they don't understand financing they haven't even actualized what money is it's just a number in a bank account to them and they don't really see any point in investing and saving in the future because they instinctively know it's being inflated away and their purchasing power is being lost all the time so what's the point of putting a whole bunch in a bank account might as well just spend it on nfts and things that kim tells you to because it's all funny money anyways so buy an experience
0: chris did you intentionally give me that lead in to russell napier i'm making good I guess, for my jumping ahead. Is that better? Gosh, you're a consummate professional, I have to say. The next article is a conversation with Russell Napier. Russell is, in my view, someone to listen to. He is an economic historian. I think that economic historians are basically the only economists you should listen to because they actually look at the past, which is the only data we have about the economy. So Ben Bernanke, who I think won a Nobel Prize for gaslighting us and saying that the great financial crisis... Crisis was a financial crisis in 2008 when it was clearly a monetary crisis. Forget him, listen to Russell. So, Russell, I think, spent the last 25 years in a brokerage house basement providing internal research. He's since gone independent since the pandemic, and now we get to hear what he says. And one thing about Russell that I think lends him credibility is that he's been a deflation bull until 2020. So, a lot of the people who kind of justify Bitcoin and see its value have been wrong for most of their lives about the inflation-deflation debate. Russell is not pro-Bitcoin. Russell doesn't get it. He's not even aware of it. But what's great about Russell is that if you read his arguments, he's saying Bitcoin without saying it. Now, essentially, Russell saw the return of inflation because during the pandemic, governments began to guarantee loan activity. This was the same thing that led to a financial bubble in Japan in the 80s. The Bank of Japan and Ministry of Finance were actually telling banks to lend. This was part of the pandemic PPP program and loan guarantee programs. This created credit. It created money because government was intervening in the credit creation process and guaranteeing loans. This has not happened before outside of Japan. So this was a big deal. And this, in his view, marked the shift into not just an inflationary cycle, but a structural shift in inflation. Well, okay, that was a one-off event. Why is it a structural shift? Well, his point is that debt levels are are just too high. Private and public sector debt in the U.S. is 290% of GDP. That mathematically can never be paid back. It's 371% in France also will never be paid back. So all of these countries essentially have mathematically unpayable debt burdens. Well, the only answer to that is either default, which results in everyone who's in charge of the government at that time probably being beheaded by an angry mob as the economy and country and society defaults and falls apart part, or you have inflation. So the choice is obvious and easy. His view is that this leads to a world that has a much more central role for government management of the economy and financial system than we have been used to in our life. And he says that this is the role of government that we generally saw after World War II and until around 1979. This is the bread and woods, managed exchange rates, capital control. Controls much more government control of financial markets and therefore the whole economy. And the argument for that is when a small crisis in energy prices or a large crisis blows up your bond market and nearly wipes out your pension system like happened in England last week, maybe it makes sense for the government to start restricting financial flows to try to stabilize these markets. There's an argument that this will result in less efficiency, less freedom, lower growth, growth, etc. But I think that history shows that essentially everyone will choose that over instability and uncertainty.
1: And doesn't he make the point, too, that we've essentially had this system from, I think he said, 1939 to 79. We've just kind of forgotten how it works. I'm not arguing that it's a good thing, but I think he made the case that, like, we've been here before, so we're going to slip back into this model. And right now, most economists, you know, they're, they're they think of a free market. That's how they view the world. But views will shift as monetary policy requires the governments take essentially the wheel and basically dictate policy based on their requirements.
0: Russell also speaks the truth around central banks, that they are impotent, they can't really control the monetary system, and that the driver of this policy and these changes will be governments that are going to have stated industrial policies and probably make serious investments in localizing energy and resources and maybe even manufacturing as a global order falls apart like Lynn Alden, Russell provides actionable advice based on his view of the world. He thinks that we are at the beginning of a process that leads us to 1970s-style stagflation. I think Lynn sort of agrees, but she sees it more similar to the 1940s, which means higher inflation and less economic growth. Russell sees one way out of this conundrum. He thinks that if governments overnight adopt a laissez-faire attitude, deregulation, regulate financial markets, reduce trade barriers, and we magically get productivity increases that give us year-on-year 4% real GDP growth, we might get out of this. Well, none of that is going to happen. So what do you actually do? His advice is to avoid government bonds, look at companies that will do well in the CapEx boom of sort of deglobalization, and think about gold. So essentially, he's a Bitcoiner. He doesn't know it yet, but he's a Bitcoiner. This is a must-read. Please give it a read it may change your mind about quite a few things.
1: Yeah, that's a great find. You're right. This is definitely someone to follow.
0: And now for a lighter interlude, Craig Stephen Wright, a.k.a. Fake Toshi, had a very vulgar conversation with a bot on Twitter. I guess all those degrees don't help you when you're arguing with a bot generating <laughs> text using machine learning.
1: <laughs> this is so hilarious. And to watch Craig argue with a bot that. That's clearly just generating, I mean, sentences that kind of make sense, but one of them Craig seems to take as like an attack, a, like a character attack, and then, and then begins to call the person childish and tells him that he should use valid debating tactics and put information out there. It's amazing to watch him argue for quite a while, too. That's the other thing, is that... <laughs> It went on. It went on for like a while, over, a, over several hours. He just does not present
0: as a smart person.
1: You don't think the person that invented Bitcoin would be fooled by a bot on Twitter and get into a silly argument on Twitter? You don't you don't think Satoshi Nakamoto would, would do that? If
0: Satoshi Nakamoto was Craig Wright, the documents trying to prove that he was Satoshi Nakamoto, that he submitted for auditing prior to his court with HODLNOT would have been faked a bit better.
1: Or it would maybe not be fake at all. That would also...
0: (laughs) Arthur Van Pelt from our Dr. Bitcoin podcast interview goes through the top five fakes of this document dump that Craig literally gave directly to KPMG to audit prior to presenting in this court case against HODLNOT. And they are obviously fake. It's hilarious. Craig just does not have the attention to detail to create a compelling fake. It's just amazing how he always sabotages himself. So try to enjoy the ridiculousness. And remember, Craig, was a threat to Bitcoin. He went after developers. He... He still might. Yeah. He caused a lot of trouble for a lot of people. And so anything he gets, any trouble he gets, he really asked for and frankly deserves, in my opinion.
1: One of my favorites is that there was a development flowchart that uh, Craig provided as evidence. And you know, uh, in there, it's it appears to be created on June 9th, 2008. Oh, oh okay. That's just about the right time. Fascinating. What could, this could be something really serious. Look, it's, it's a development flow chart that was created before Bitcoin was released. Except for when you actually analyze the metadata of the file, it turns out it was created with Adobe Acrobat Distiller, which wasn't even released until April 17th of 2015. So the application used to create that flowchart came out in 2015. And then he just retroactively dated it 2008. ha ha ha! And it's obvious, too. They can tell that it was without a doubt created after the date that he put in the document, um, that it was created in 2015, at least after 2015. And there's several things like that. Yeah. And and then he he tried to claim in court there's reasons to explain that. There's lots of ways to explain that, but none of the reasons actually held up. I watched some of the video just to kind of try to see what his explanation would be. And he didn't have one. Typical Craig. If you want to
0: learn more about how Craig Wright lies constantly in a documented fashion, check out the Dr. Bitcoin pod. And they really get into it, though, to be honest, after learning so much about Craig Wright, I sort of felt like I had diaper brain. So you've been warned.
1: (laughs) This story is fascinating. This Mulvad VPN story really came about because they were doing an audit on their own code.
0: I just think they're a really serious company and I love their tools. So Mulvad first discovered that iOS was leaking VPN keep alive data, I think. So it wasn't leaking traffic, but it was leaking your IP address. If you're trying to do something private, anyone watching will be able to determine that you're trying to do something
1: private, if not know exactly what. Is that right, Chris? More research was conducted and some other Apple apps sometimes times leak outside the VPN as well. It might be in scenarios where they can't resolve Apple servers inside the VPN. The app then falls back to leaking outside the VPN, like like the wallet app even. Try to check in with Apple HQ. So it's leaking information about you. So if someone had access to the network and they were scanning, they'd see your Mac address and they'd see your IP address and they'd see your destination, potentially the protocol. But if someone also had access to, say, the AP you're on, then they might even have your exact location. It starts to get kind of dicey. So if you turn on a VPN and you expect everything to be tunneled through that VPN and your operating system is still leaking metadata, I'd say that's not exactly the end result you were expe- expecting. <laughs> you were, you thought everything would go through that, tunnel, right? I think that'd be your expectation. The
0: truth is that cell phones are small computers and they're very complicated. And when you have actors like Google and Apple managing the operating system for you, they get to do a lot of things that might not be in your best interest. And so on Android, if you have... A- Ironically, a Google phone, like a Pixel device like I do, you can install an operating system called Graphene OS that removes Google from your phone. It it de-Googles your operating system. And honestly, it will lack some features that Google has. For me, I don't miss them. And it just provides a simpler, cleaner smartphone experience that is more private and I have more control over. So I really like Graphene OS. Plug it.
1: I love it. It it was surprisingly easy to get set up on my Pixel 3. And it still runs fine on my Pixel 3. The battery could be better, but I think that's just the age of my phone. So what GrapheneOS did here that solved this problem that Google could do and Apple could do is in the case of Android, Android leaks information outside the VPN when you connect to a Wi-Fi access point. At the moment of connectivity, when you join that AP, it wants to check to see, is there a captive portal? Do I need to present the user with a web viewer so that way they can authenticate to this captive portal? And in order to check for that, it looks outside the VPN because it needs to probe the network you're on. And in doing so, it leaks the same metadata the iOS user was leaked. Graphene OS just gives you a checkbox. It's just a checkbox. Do you want to check for captive portals? Yes or no. And if you turn it off, you don't leak information. It's it's a really simple solution. And Graphene OS always errs on the side of privacy and security. So sometimes things don't quite work as well or the same, but for the most part, it's fine. But if there is a compromise to be made, they compromise in the direction of privacy and security. And if you're keeping any Bitcoin on your phone, if you're using it for like two-factor authentication, if your phone is part of your overall security, security strategy in any way, and you're on Android, I think it's seriously worth considering Graphene OS for your next phone. I have been surprised at how great it is. I kind of thought it wouldn't work for me, and it's exceeded my expectations.
0: So all you need to do is turn off Captive Portal login
1: in Graphene, and that's it? Yeah, on the Wi-Fi settings, I think, you go in there and turn off Captive Portal checking, and then it won't leak any information outside. Now, on Graphene, if you turn it on, it will leak, because it's got to check for the Captive Portal. But at the same time, if you're at a hotel, sometimes you have to authenticate in order to get, you know, a routable IP to know. So that's a useful guide and a plug for graphene if you want to go down the privacy rabbit hole, which is fine. High five over to Molvad for auditing their own code. They actually thought this might have been an issue with their VPN client. Turns out it's an issue with VPNs on mobile devices, but they discovered it because they were checking their code and uh, you got to respect that. So guess what? A self-hosted show over at Jupiter Broadcasting. It's one of my shows. You know, we have a whole series of shows too. jupiterbroadcasting.com, Linux shows, development shows. You heard us mention Coda Radio earlier. We just love the idea of self sovereign data, self-sovereign operating systems, and of course, self-sovereign money. That's really Jupiter Broadcasting when you boil it down, Jupiterbroadcasting.com.
0: Which brings us to Bitcoin education. Bitcoin Optech 221 is out, summarizing the latest conversations and proposals on the Bitcoin dev mailing list. Oh gosh, this is really complicated stuff, huh?
1: Well, this first one doesn't seem too bad. This seems actually kind of like a great idea for casual lightning nodes, a longer timeout proposal that extends the allowed downtime up to several months without risking losing funds and channels. Of course, both sides have to agree to that. But what is the trade-off? It just locks up funds a lot longer, right? Yeah, and you could actually technically do this now, but, um, you know, I I just thinking about it. When we had Brent's node down for a few days, um, it would have been a real shame if after I got it back up and running all those channels it closed. And when you have people that are learning, maybe they're just doing it for themselves because they want to have their own node and they want to provide their own channels. And something goes wrong, like my home server, my Raspberry Pi died on the road trip. And so my home server down. I almost turned that into a node and that would be my node right now would be down. And it's, it's been two weeks. It's just when you add losing money to that too as well in your lightning channels, that's really stressful. And so for casuals, I like this idea. Clearly for like high traffic channels, you know, <laughs> exchanges, those types of things, I don't think it makes sense. But for those that are just trying it at home, maybe for themselves or their friends or family, I get
0: it. We're building an open source decentralized payment system that is already punching Visa and MasterCard in the face and it's going to take their lunch pretty soon. So it's going to be complicated and there are going to be trade-offs. I think that one potential issue with this approach to super long timeouts for Lightning channels is it could lock up your funds for a really long time. So if the user doesn't understand the long lockup of funds versus losing funds trade-off, then they could get frustrated if they don't know what they're getting into.
1: Yeah, good point. Lightning is an exciting overall development, I think, and it, in a way, it does allow for some people to play around with their sats and do something with them now, like uh, at JB for our boosts, we're not cashing out our sats, but we're also not just sitting on. We're using it. We're turning it around and we're using those sats for liquidity to open up larger channels. So now like I have channels that are open directly with Fountain FM or I have a channel that's open directly with Breeze or whatever. And so it just makes the boosting network more efficient. And those sats, I guess in theory, I could be earning big routing fees or something, but I, I don't. But I, I'm still putting those sats to use today without having to give up custody, without having to stake it on Coinbase.
0: The other article in our Bitcoin education- education segment is slightly to the side of Bitcoin. It's the history of the Hydra Darknet marketplace. But Darknet marketplaces like the Silk Road were the first in the wild test of Bitcoin and whether or not it's really robust and trustless and censorship resistant. Hydra was a Darknet marketplace mainly based in Russia, and they were slightly innovative because instead of using the postal system, which is risky because you have to know someone's address even if they use address masking. Postal officials can seize these shipments and basically everything on Hydra was probably super illegal. I think that they also sold VPN and some stuff that was, you know, you could say, okay, well, you know, VPNs are illegal in Russia. I just want to be private. Most of what Hydra did was very bad in the sense that it became a center, I think, for laundering money after financial scams and hacks and things like that and selling personal information, but they were kind of innovative in that they moved away from the postal system for physical deliveries and they would do dead drops where they'd kind of hide a package in the general city where you could pick it up and then give you GPS coordinates on how to find it. It's
1: like geocaching.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another interesting aspect is that when they were seized, they were their servers were actually running in Germany, which seems odd. Why Germany, which is kind of a more law and order place than Russia, or at mm. least that's the association. Mm-hmm. They were also associated with Blender, which was that big Bitcoin mixer that was taken down just before the Tornado Cash sanctions. So it's an interesting bit of sort of crypto anarchism history, and the last thing I want Wanted to point out was there is this conversation about how darknet markets are getting rid of Bitcoin because it's not private enough and they're moving to Monero. This article, which I think is is this Ergo BTC? It's really good. This is a really great article. So kudos for doing the research and putting this together. Yeah, it's Ergo. He shows a chart of the currencies accepted on the new dark net marketplaces that have risen up to replace Hydra, and they all accept Bitcoin. No one's Monero only. And he says that possibly the, the way it's being used is using a Monero to Bitcoin swap, which can happen quite seamlessly. And this brings to mind Paul, because Paul's point about Monero and privacy coins is, in a way, as long as there is a, a method to swap Bitcoin for the privacy coin that isn't too risky or too expensive without too much friction, it's almost like a Bitcoin layer to already. And based on the relative size of Bitcoin and Monero, there might be something there.
1: I think a lot of things are going to be that. If you think about it, Bitcoins is the savings technology. So you're swapping a lot of things ultimately into Bitcoin. This is just a more direct swap.
0: The article ends with a list of the darknet marketplaces that have arisen after the fall of Hydra. Like the Hydra's heads, they've sprouted more in the place of the one that was cut off. And Ergo actually provides links to them. So I'd watch out clicking any of these links. (laughs) Do it in using Huonix or Cube OS. It's all Tor, so hopefully that'll protect you. But just be really careful investigating this. It could be interesting. Yeah. It could be disturbing. I have no idea, but it's all there in the article. So investigate at your own risk.
1: And be careful how you spend your KYC coins, kids.
0: Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch with the Bitcoin Dad DadPod, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Consider joining our Matrix channel, which is provided by Chris and Jay. Thank you so much for that. You can use a client like Element and there's always good conversation in there. We have one correction this week, which was provided by the Bitcoin dad's dad, who was a little irked that when we talked about the U.S. oil boom, we incorrectly attributed its beginning. The U.S. oil boom in the 19th century did not begin in Texas. It began in Western Pennsylvania,
1: which was the birthplace
0: of Standard Oil, the huge oil monopoly.
1: Uh, of course, you know, we must have been repeating. Heating that uh, big star state propaganda. Right. Western Penn, birth
0: of the oil boom, represent. So the Bitcoin dad dad wanted us to get that correction
1: in. That feels like one of those details that when you know the entire story, like, no, this part really matters. But when you don't know the whole story, you're like, all right, okay. Seems like a detail. All right. Which brings us
0: to boosts. You can always boost into the Bitcoin dad pod. And if it's over a thousand sats, we'll read it out on the show. If it's under a thousand sats, we will read it, enjoy it, and sometimes read it out on the show because, you know, rules are guidelines, right? (laughs) Yeah, all right. I mean... You're the dad. You make the rules. We're communists in our family, socialists in our community,
1: and capitalists in our like wider society. In our business or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. This one was shooting at me. So I thought I'd grab it. It was under a thousand sats, but HPC Morgan. Hello, Morgan. Boosted. And he says, I'm kind of annoyed Chris hasn't used my donated server as a node. It's got dual Xeons, man. That being said, I have some older GPUs I might be able to ship in. Oh, you know, ooh, let's make it a Monero miner. He says a topic that might be worth mentioning is that the small market where folks buy lost wallets from the original owners who forgot the pass key and then work on cracking that passphrase. P.S. I started listening due to the shout outs from Chris on LUP. Yeah, you know, Morgan, I uh, I have a older Dell upstairs in my office where I have a portable air conditioner that I can keep that office kind of in like the high 70s in the peak of summer. And so that's where I keep my node. So that way it can run 24 seven because I've just taken right now to shutting down the servers <laughs> when in like August. The servers don't run during the day much at the studio.
0: Right. I saw that and just mentioned that a high passphrase Powered machine is really too much horsepower for a Bitcoin node. So I imagine you'd be using it as a virtualization client. Yep. I don't think you have cheap enough power to do <laughs> profitable crypto mining.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm so tempted, though, to Monero mine in the winter. I want to build like little space heaters out of mini PCs with a big GPU in them, just big enough for a GPU that could mine really good and kick out some heat. I feel like if I'm going to burn a thousand watts, I don't it think you can well.
0: Monero mine on a GPU.
1: They use Random X as their. Oh, oh you're right. Okay. I thought you could, but you know what? I think you're right. That I remember that being one of the things. All right. All right. Well, then that's what the Zeons will be perfect for. Perfect. Problem solved. The
0: next three boosts are uh, from Nick's Bitcoin is amazing. And I agree with that sentiment. And thank <laughs> you for your three two sat boots. That's really awesome. I'm going to read them out. There's a lot I don't agree with here. So this is a great opportunity for some debate. Philosophers. This is from Nick's Bitcoin is amazing. Philosophers and critical thinkers are still being attacked today like Stefan Molyneux, Jordan Peterson, Alec Jones and Andrew Tate. At least things have improved since the days to Socrates in that challenging philosophers aren't forced to drink hemlock this is a reference to Paul Storks who talks about Socrates and drinking hemlock on our guest uh, host episode I disagree here characterizing Stefan molyneux who is known to be running an online cult that's very harmful and also has a record of saying really horrible racist and sexist things he just seems like a kind of a terrible person from the outside so if you're idealizing him you might be inside his bubble you know just make sure you you're right and and I'm not that would be something to check. You know, frankly, I I feel the same way about Jordan Peterson. You know, he's someone who gets involved in the culture wars, and I think he has a valid point around essentially breaking up society into hyper-politicized units. You know, I have very specific political beliefs, and I won't listen to anyone outside of this unit. Now, that fractures society, and it hurts political consensus. At the same time, Jordan then does that with his own community and invents nonsense terms like postmodern neo-Marxism, we should link to, gosh, there's that uh, that YouTuber who debunks some of his stuff. It's, it's pretty hilarious. That might be a helpful link. And listen, if you think Alex Jones is a critical thinker, I don't know what to say. This is a guy who's pushed conspiracy theories, who victimized the parents of a school massacre. Um, he's really a bad guy. And does he have the right to say those things? Yes. Is he a critical thinker or philosopher? No. He shills diet supplements and scammy products on his website. So if you're listening to Alex Jones, in my opinion, you're being taken advantage of. So disagree there. Nick's Bitcoin continues. Why argue about how best to structure state democracy when the whole idea leads to inevitable collapse? Instead, consider small city-states which collaborate in an anarchic structure. Anarcho-capitalism allows for leaders to structure society the way they see fit and also allows for the common man to move between jurisdictions easily. Well, I think the first part of that last sentence captures it. It allows for leaders to structure society the way they see fit. Uh, Yeah, less organized forms of society do tend to devolve towards dictatorship and one man rule and tyranny. But why would they allow the common man to move between jurisdictions? Well, I don't know. That might be difficult in a world of tyranny. I don't see the inevitable collapse of large, complicated states. I guess I view democracy and society as a project that, like Bitcoin, it's a rocket ship that is being rebuilt as we drive it. So I I don't think that, I mean, small city states, kind of an interesting idea. It brings to mind Greece during the Peloponnesian period, but that was a very different level of society, technology, and sort of international relations. And our last boost from Nick's Bitcoin is amazing. An alternative to drive chain is Ruben Sampson's space chain, which is only a one-way peg, which means if you decide to move your coins to a space chain, then it stays in the space chain forever. I think space chain is possible today, and there may be some work on starting up the first space. Chain And they link to a introduction video and the Telegram discussion chat, which we will link to in the notes. Space chains are really interesting. I'd be interested to see if there is a desire for a one way peg Bitcoin sidechain. Paul's point is that a one way peg is about 1% as interesting as a two way peg. And I tend to agree with Paul <laughs> on that point.
1: True Grids boosted in with 1701 sets. The Star Trek boost I loved having Paul on the show. Would love to see him back again. Miss you, Chris. One thing I really like about Monero that I simply don't think Bitcoin can fix at this point is the ability for the average person to mine using consumer hardware. Yeah, we were just talking about that. My current system, I mine Monero with the P2 pool for the win. And then I buy Bitcoin. (laughs) Bitcoin. Well, there you go, True Grits. I wondered about that. Um, I, I, I had to imagine that's not a, a fast way to buy Bitcoin, though. you got to think you'd probably just save money DCA indirectly, but yeah, yeah. it's kind of fun to mine, isn't it?
0: And we received a row of threes from DJ, 3,333 sats. Excellent interview with Paul Stork. Thank you so much. Please keep up the lineup of these amazing guests. No shortage of fascinating topics. Here's a row of swans. Oh, that's what it is. A row of there swans. You go. To propose more talks about swan Bitcoin and other companies that use external custodians prime trust etc which may limit the business options swan and similar outfits and add more counterparty risk maybe
1: so this just came up this weekend on stacker news as well as people are concerned about prime trust being behind swan bitcoin and i guess prime trust is also the custodian behind the strike app and someone posted on twitter and then on stacker news that they had their swan and strike accounts suspended after they donated to an open source project and the suspension was done at the prime trust level. And so it's brought up the question of what is the risk with Prime Trust? And do people realize that Prime Trust is the custodian behind so many of these Bitcoin companies? And people suspect that Prime Trust is getting into other crypto as well. And so Swan sells itself as a Bitcoin only company, which I think is true. But people wonder if it matters if Prime Trust starts screwing around with crypto in general. This is a tricky one because I don't know, do we really want all these companies inventing their own custodial solutions as well? That seems like we'd be ripe for different types of hacking exploits.
0: It's a hard one. I'm interested in looking into Prime Trust and sort of what their their MO seems to be. DJ continues and says, Crowd Health's investment in Swan Bitcoin may be a topic for another episode also. I'm curious about how that works and how far down the risks extend. Yeah, CrowdHealth really is a head-scratcher for me. They seem to be sort of an alternative to doing insurance in the US. Getting health insurance in this country is a real mess, and CrowdHealth seems to be trying to do something in that space. It seems Insanely expensive and provides some sort of coverage, but you have to pay five hundred dollars a doctor's visit. I mean, it, it looks pretty crazy to me. I, I don't quite get it. Maybe I, maybe I have that number wrong. I don't know. But I looked no, into I think it. No, it right. I- I was scratching my head at it.
1: It's $500 and then the rest can be put towards the crowd to be crowdfunded. And then generally it seems most of them get approved, but people could deny it if they want to. And they also attempt to renegotiate the pricing. So there's that process you have to go through for better or for worse. It's a pretty bad situation when that's a great option for a lot of people. Um, That is where we live right now. Optimus Gray boosted in with 2048 sats. Here's a local news update on the Bitcoin dad pod. I was just two miles away. In fact, one town over when I heard you talk about St. And go well, hey that's, optimist that's gray I'm waving. I hope you can see me. You know, I saw Optimus Gray down in Pasadena, and I don't think he mentioned to me that he's listening to the dad pod, but it's great to know. Oh, cool.
0: Our final boost is from Marcel. 10,000 sats. Mega boost. Pew, pew, pew. Thanks for the great show, as always. Also, since Chris is curious about this, I found the show through JB. The first JB show I listened to is self-hosted, which I found through Level 1 Text. (laughs) Huh, that's great. If Level 1 Text is mentioning you, you are, like, the real deal, Chris
1: level one text is connected to self-hosted self-hosted is connected to the dad pod yeah we had we've had wendell on self-hosted a couple of times and we were on the level one text channel a little while back
0: well that is our episode thank you so much for tuning in this has been the bitcoin dad pod recorded on saturday october fifteenth, 2022 i've been your bitcoin dad and
1: me me over here chris thanks for joining us everybody see you next time